Welcome back to your primary playlist. I'm your host, Emily Tish Sussman. For those joining us for the first time, this podcast is your definitive guide to the 2020 presidential primary, explained by the women who know it best. Today, we're going to be talking about an issue that has been at top of mind recently, immigration. Americans' concern with immigration continues to grow, as 23% name it the most important problem facing the country. This is an issue that's important on both sides of the aisle, and our outdated immigration system has been problematic for decades. But before we get to Trump, let's do a rewind to 2012. After Romney's loss, the Republican Party did a post-mortem that showed that if the party wanted to stay relevant for the future, it could not just rely on old white men. Instead, the report recommended, the party moderate its stance on immigration in order to attract more Latinx, therefore diversifying the party. Even in the 2016 Republican presidential primary, Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio supported nuanced immigration plans. But instead of moderating Trump and therefore the party once he became the nominee, doubled down on strict immigration policies playing on people's fears. The move towards extremism continued once Trump was elected. It's not just the positions he's taken, but also how he's used the power of the executive branch. Under his leadership, ICE, Immigration, Customs and Enforcement, has increased the number of people they're deporting by thousands per year. ICE raids have ramped up around the country, attracting public outrage. While ICE used to prioritize going after people with criminal records, the raids have become less focused on these people and are now including families who have lived in the U.S. for years. But what's largely captured people's attention has been the detention centers at the border. Since Trump became the president, at least 24 people have died in ICE custody, and the conditions don't seem to be improving. The border is just one of the many ways the administration has meddled with immigration. Trump ordered the, quote, Muslim ban, reduced refugee admissions to the lowest level since the program was created, and ended temporary legal status for people from certain countries who have lived in the U.S. for decades. So where do the Democratic candidates stand? Candidates support a path to citizenship for the roughly 11 million people who are undocumented or under temporary protected status. But there are differences, some big and some small, between the 2020 candidates. To break it all down, I'm thrilled to be joined by a leader in the immigration policy field, Angie Kelly. Angie is the Senior Strategic Advisor for Immigration at the Open Society Foundations and Open Society Policy Center. She's the daughter of South American immigrants and started her career as a legal services attorney representing low-income immigrants. She went on to become involved with many political and legal organizations. She served in the Obama White House as an advisor on immigration executive actions. Welcome, Angie. Thanks, Emily. Great to be here. This is a tough conversation to have, to talk about immigration in this climate. There's really, of all the communities that Trump has really focused on and tried to vilify, this would be the top. But Trump didn't create immigration as a complicated problem. He didn't create immigration as a policy issue. I mean, what was the state of play on immigration pre-Trump? Sure, yeah, you're absolutely right. He didn't create some of the challenges that we have in our immigration system. But as you also note, he has certainly vilified immigrants um, and I think has really polarized the debate and made it harder to have any kind of sober conversation. And where we were before Trump was elected was that Obama had tried to work with Congress to get a comprehensive bill passed. He succeeded in the Senate in that there was a super bipartisan majority that passed a big piece of legislation that would have really overhauled our immigration laws and frankly avoided a lot of the problems that we're having today. And the House of Representatives that at the time was controlled by Republicans refused to act. So by the time President Obama left office, there hadn't been comprehensive legislation done. 
That doesn't mean that there weren't still lots of policies that had been enacted. One of the ones that many people know about is to protect undocumented youth, dreamers, and there was a program created called DACA, which is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. So Obama protected about 800,000 young people who have now work authorization, not a green card, but work authorization. And that was something that Trump tried to eliminate right away, practically. It's been held up in the court, so that program's still still around, um, at least for now. And the other thing that existed, of course, was immigration enforcement. Obama, over his eight years in office, landed, I think, in a pretty decent place in terms of prioritizing where do we put enforcement resources and against whom. And it was much more against people who had criminal records and not against people who had children who were born here and had lived here for many years with no criminal record. Now we see just kind of sweeping, kind of going after anybody who's here without papers. And then the other thing that we also saw under Obama is, of course, that people were beginning to come from the Northern Triangle, three countries in Central America, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, where there's extraordinary levels of violence. And that was something that really at at times vexed the Obama administration, particularly in the summer of 2015, 2014. But it was handled very differently. Children weren't separated from their families in the kind of brutal way that we saw last summer. And there wasn't this, you know, kind of position of just like shoving people back (laughs) over the border by using Mexico as a place where people have to have to stay. So the policies were handled not perfectly under Obama. We could certainly talk about that, but that's a whole separate podcast. But it was nowhere near the level of kind of inhumanity, frankly, that we're seeing now. Under the Obama administration, I remember being in meetings with you, meeting with the White House, talking about the situation at the border with an increase of immigrants and being dissatisfied with how the Obama administration was handling uh, was handling the influx of, of potential refugees and immigrants. But that's actually a world of difference from what it is now. I think that the prioritization of enforcement is not something that people actually truly grasp, how different that is now. That's right. That's right. Um, the level of just um, intensity uh, around interior enforcement, um, we've seen really almost since the the first months of the Trump administration, a number of people that we'd never seen before who ha- are getting swept up, um, not just in raids, but also being picked up who have no criminal record. And that is a marked, market change. What's happening at the border, people can see it. <laughs> There's a lot of people there. There's a lot of media there. Um, it doesn't go away. But what's happening in our communities, in the streets, um, you know, sadly, sometimes outside of schools, near houses of worship, people don't see. And it's this kind of drip, drip, drip of terror. And that's the, a little bit the untold story. Um, frankly, of this administration. There was, uh, just this summer, a policy by the administration that's called expedited removal, um, which basically means that the administration can now, ICE agents and Border Patrol, if they come in contact with you and you can't prove that you've been here for at least two years, that you can basically be deported on the spot. Like, you don't have to have a day in court. Um, They can just bypass due process. It's pretty scary, Emily, because I don't know about you, but I have a lot of stuff in my purse. I don't have anything that shows that I was born in this country. I don't have anything that shows how long I've lived here. And now we're asking people to basically carry papers. And the kinds of people that are going to be pulled over and stopped are not going to be, you know, nice white women driving Audi SUVs. Do you think that the rhetoric that Trump uses impacts the policy or is it just offensive? 
I think the rhetoric and then uh, who he surrounds himself with. I think he has put in the White House, you know, a relatively young person, Steve Miller, uh, who used to work for Senator Sessions, former attorney general, who is about the most restrictionist oriented White House staffer I've ever met, has uh, a lot of power and that, you, you know, you see that kind of play out in other parts in the agency as well, the Department of Homeland Security. So he has intense, hateful rhetoric on Twitter, and then that gets transformed into policy through executive action. It's completely different than it once was, where you could have bipartisan support for immigration policies, for programs like the DACA program or for the DREAM Act for undocumented youth. Um, you know, I mean, senators rolled up their sleeves and got to work back in 2013. And you had Republicans and Democrats alike that, like I said, had passed a big piece of legislation. People are going to continue to come to the border. So we're going to need a long term solution We're, you know, we're facing labor shortages and we're going to continue to have like the need for more people to come to this country to work conversation around how many people and what industries there's no oxygen for that kind of conversation right now, unfortunately. When we talk about comprehensive immigration, those are some of the pieces that go into it, right? Like, what are the what is the legal process for immigration? What kind of work visas? As you've mentioned, what industries do they go to? How long do they last? Yeah, yeah, you're spot on. That that is um, a big chunk of uh, what would be a sensible immigration policy debate. As would enforcement. As would what do we do with the folks that are already here? That's sort of like the three the three legged stool. Um, I guess maybe it would be a four-legged chair because I think our asylum system now merits its own conversation because it's insufficient for what we're seeing in terms of people coming to this country fleeing not only violence, um, but also things like climate change. So we have to just recognize that we're not an island and that this is really a, a, it's a problem that we need to tackle with our neighbors to the north, with Canada, with Mexico, really requires a regional solution. And so I, I think that that's probably a more um, recent but equally critical part of the immigration conversation. Look, I think everyone in America has just been shocked by the conditions at the border. Um, it's heart-wrenching when you hear about people dying, children dying in our custody. I mean, it breaks through across across political lines. What led to these conditions at the border? Like, are there specific policies that are making it worse? It's a couple things. The violence in those countries is, if anything, intensifying. So it is extremely dangerous. I've interviewed a number of asylum seekers when I worked briefly near the border at a detention center. And I heard, you know, very credible, similar stories of women who were being recruited to what would be a life basically of prostitution, to be raped and to have to belong to a gang. Their children's lives were being threatened. Um, slightly older women, their 12-year-old boys, were being sought after. And so, and it was all women that I, I talked to, Emily, and they made exactly the calculation that I would make as a mother, that I bet you would make as a mother, is to get the hell out and to take my kid with me or to send my child because I have other, you know, babies that I have to take care of here who can't make the journey. So serious uptick in violence. The other reason for the conditions at the border being so chaotic is frankly how we're dealing with it. So we have Border Patrol offices and a whole enforcement infrastructure that was created over many years to deal with young Mexican men coming here to work. And that's not the flow that we have anymore. 
right? It's more women and kids, it's families. And so how you accommodate and how you meet the needs of the population coming today is really different. So we haven't allocated resources and adjusted to having children coming in such large numbers who need to be moved out of the border patrol stations quickly and into the care of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which are a different kind of facility, but then to find their families here in the U.S. because most people who are coming to the United States have family here already. And typically what happened, Emily, under the Obama administration is that those unaccompanied minors, you'd find their aunt in New Jersey, you'd find the cousin in Seattle, you'd find the grandfather in Phoenix, get in touch with the family members and and move them there, right? You reunite them. But now what's happening is that that uncle, cousin, and grandparent are afraid to come forward because maybe they're undocumented or there's someone else in the household who's undocumented. And so that, you know, reign of terror keeps the family members from coming to get the 14-year-old girl who's in a detention center. And again, that's like the unnecessary chaos that it doesn't have to be that way. I have to tell you, Angie, I've had a lot of these policy conversations this is the first one that's actually made me cry. Because it's, it, could be, it could be us. It could be our kids, right? It would be the same for both of us if we were there. Absolutely. I'm sorry. I mean, we have to hear it, you know? Like, this is real. The Trump administration policies are so extreme that a lot of the Democratic proposals from candidates are simply just about undoing what he's done. So how important do you think it is for Democratic candidates to also have proactive policies on immigration? I think it's fundamentally the most important thing that they can do, that they can put forward plans that make sense for the country so that Americans can see themselves in those immigration plans and feel proud and not paralyzed or threatened. So you do see the candidates trying to tackle what is a complicated issue on some of their, their websites. Um, certainly it came out in the Democratic debates. Um, they have plans. They're not ready to go as pieces of legislation, but they're laying down markers, and I, I think that's good. I sometimes feel frustrated that they are reactive and that they're even reacting to each other. And you know, and you saw that in the Julian Castro kind of pushing Democrats, um, and they came up in the second debate, about whether they support decriminalizing crossing the border. You know, we can argue about yes or no, uh, but that is, when I think of the overall scheme of what needs to be reformed in immigration, that's not really where I want the candidates putting their hands up or, or not. Uh, it's, it's just, it's a, frankly a, a bit of a distraction. And that conversation about decriminalization at the border, the section 1325, that was that first debate kind of challenging when Castro was challenging um, O'Rourke kind of pushing him on the policy. Can you just explain that for us a little bit? And also, why has it become so central to the conversation? I mean, is it central to the immigration conversation or was it just sort of a debate moment? It was a debate moment. It's right now central to the conversation. I don't know that it will remain central to the conversation because as soon as you really start trying to match up the problems and then solutions, this like doesn't doesn't make the top top 10, really. You know, he was framing it in terms of the criminalization uh, uh, being the reason why family separation happened. Family separation doesn't have to happen. You know, that law was on the books for the last 90 years, um, and we didn't have family separation before. Democrats could get themselves painted in a corner of not, not being for the rule of law if the notion of coming here illegally isn't a crime. 
And so that's really what is at the heart of this. Is this is like a 90-year-old law that illegal entry um, has been a misdemeanor going back to, I think, 1929. So if you overstay your visa, that's a civil violation, for example. But if you're crossing illegally, that's a misdemeanor. If you're in the U.S. illegally, right, I'm here illegally, I get picked up by ICE, that's a civil violation. That's not a, a, a crime that I'm here illegally. What was a crime was what I did before when I entered illegally. And so, as you can imagine, this isn't really kind of getting at very much of the, the, the problem. It's under this administration, they've plucked that piece of the law and they have turbocharged it and imbued in it much more power. That doesn't mean that another administration, even with that law gone, couldn't do some of those same things in just how it executes immigration policy. Because the truth is, Emily, that this is an area of law where the executive branch has very broad discretion and can, you know, and this administration is really pushing the limits on that. So what, what has been the case under previous administrations is that presidents just haven't put resources into enforcing that particular misdemeanor, and the Trump administration has. That's kind of at the heart of it. Again, I think it ends up being a kind of an unfortunate rabbit hole for Democrats. I just don't think that Americans want to think of crossing the U.S. illegally as being like a speeding ticket. I think that uh, many are going to want there to be more oomph behind it. They don't want kids to be taken from their parents. But this is just my gut. This is not based on public opinion research. It's just like kind of where do I think the American public is going to be on this? And I think that, that, that that's probably not a winning issue for, for the Democrats. What is a dream immigration proposal at this point? We absolutely have to be smart about how we manage the border. I think we need to give people a fair chance to make a case for asylum, not a free pass. I think we need to treat people humanely and give them a chance to reunite with family to get a lawyer, to have a chance to make their case in court. And that means that we need to do things like hire more asylum officers. We need to take what have been pilot programs where people have been released from detention, basically put in the, the, the custody, if you will, of community-based organizations, and they show up at court, right? Because they've got the support of community-based organizations. I mean, it needs to be like a private and public partnership rather than the government you know, one day having policies that have 1,200 people being released in El Paso, and then the next day it's 200 people, and nobody knows where those 1,000 people have gone. You need to be transparent about what it is that you're doing with folks, the conditions under which they're being held. And since we already spend $18 billion a year on immigration enforcement, let's allocate resources sensibly so that we're dealing with the flow that's coming. We also need to engage other countries. I mentioned this. People aren't going just to the U.S., right? They're also going to Mexico. Panama, Costa Rica, Belize have all seen an uptick in refugees. We need to engage Canada. So they, they also accept people. And you know what's interesting is that the whole refugee resettlement program, which the Trump administration has also eviscerated, we don't resettle any refugees from Central America, which is kind of weird if you think about it, right? And refugee resettlement means that they get basically screened. Um, the vetting process happens outside the U.S., and then people are brought in. This is something where I think like we should bring in our fair share and, again, have other countries participate. 
And then another big element of what needs to happen is to, I would advocate for a regulated 21st century legal immigration system where we're reuniting families, absolutely an important cornerstone of immigration policy. That's why I'm here talking to you because my mom was able to come because our sister petitioned for her. And we also need to figure out how many people do we need to come work? And as I said earlier, in what industries, what kinds of visas? You won't believe this, Emily, but we haven't updated our legal immigration laws since 1990. Wow. Yeah. So the number of visas that are available for people who are coming to work in different categories is the same today in 2019 as it was in 1990. And just think about how our economy has changed. Again, these are proposals that did pass the Senate where labor and business sat down together and hammered out a deal that would identify on a regular basis the kinds of needs that we have that sadly didn't become law. I guess the last thing I would say is that we need to deal sensibly with the people who are here without papers, like the kids who have DACA. And, you know, let's be clear, when someone like Trump hires undocumented people, you know, housekeeper after housekeeper, cook after cook, gardener after gardener that has come out cracking down on employers who are getting pretty much a free pass right now also feels like an essential part of of immigration reform. And do you feel like if this is the dream proposal, do you feel like this is where the Democratic candidates are as a field? Are their proposals just not detailed enough at this point? Couldn't give them a grade. Different candidates have nuggets here and nuggets there. Like Beto O'Rourke, for example, has uh, community visas as a part of his program. He's borrowing an idea from our neighbors to the north where people can basically sponsor folks as a part of the community. Like That's, that's a great idea. We, we don't currently do that in the U.S. Senator Harris has an analysis of the law where she believes through a series of executive actions that she could do more for those who have DACA, not just a work authorization, but actually get them legal status. We need to examine that, but that's pretty, it's creative. You worked on executive actions at the White House. Do you think that falls under something the general counsel has found permissible before? Or like, how would you evaluate that? Great question. I hadn't heard that before. And It's not to say that it's not right. It may be premised on policies that exist now, like DACA, that begins the process that that, uh, Senator Harris has mapped out for how people can get permanent status. But let's say that the Supreme Court in November, when they hear the DACA case, says, no DACA. DACA's gone. So that's what worries me a little bit, is that what perhaps what it's predicated on could change, but I don't know. And I certainly don't close the door uh, because I think she's a really smart lawyer and I'm sure had a lot of smart lawyers working for her. I think your point, though, that I worked on executive action is one that bears repeating in that all, all the candidates talk about their day one you know, actions. And immigration ranks high <laughs> on many of theirs and particularly through executive action. And that's honestly exactly what Trump did. So I do worry for the long term, Emily, because we we keep we would have a ping pong match. Right. But it would be with people's lives, not little white balls. If we go from administration to administration where I'm going to create an executive action that legalizes you. And then the next the next administration says, no, 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 I'm taking that away. That's no way for a country that is as big and frankly, as smart as we are um, to live. Right. Uh, and, and, and it doesn't do right by the people who are caught in the crosshairs. So Trump actually has a proposal for increasing merit based visas and cutting back on family sponsored visas. So can you explain that to us? While merit sounds really appealing, 
it would wildly throw out of balance the kinds of folks that could come to this country by favoring folks mostly, mostly coming from Europe, Northern European countries, people who speak English, people who have PhDs, you know, certainly not my, my Bolivian mother who came with a high school education. She would never meet the merit system of a Trump administration. Um, when the Senate took a number of votes, including on this White House proposal, and it, it lost by the, the biggest margin of all the votes that they took. The Trump administration also proposes eliminating different family categories so that there's, again, my mother who came when her sister applied for her couldn't come to the United States. At its core, it's about changing the mix of who comes to the U.S. You would see far fewer people coming from the continent of Africa, for example, because they come on something called diversity visas, and those would be eliminated. So you can see where this is going, right? It would be mostly a white flow. So one of the other policy proposals that is considered a little more extreme, but is out there, um, is abolishing ICE. So that's a proposal that's currently only supported by more fringe candidates, de Blasio and Messam. But other candidates like Castro have talked about restructuring ICE. So can you explain to us what is the what is the problem they're solving for and if you think that's a, a good solution? I think what they're reacting to, because abolish ICE is a relatively new, a new mantra that a number of people are, are repeating. What they're reacting to is a dramatic change under the Trump administration of not prioritizing on how they use enforcement resources and not prioritizing on who they go after, when and how they go out to pick people up. And so under the Obama administration, and this took some time because there were a lot of people deported under Obama, remember, they reached a level of prioritizing that was really channeling the resources that they have of who to go after, who's here without status, without papers, people who had criminal records, people that were smuggling, people who are part of you know, criminal operations that go way beyond just being here without status. And that became a much more effective way of getting rid of those who actually mean us the most harm and, frankly, not targeting people who were undocumented youth like the Dreamers or the, you know, the dad that coaches a soccer team and has been here for, you know, 30 years um, and has a family and U.S. citizen kids, but he's, you know, never gotten a speeding ticket even. You know, that dad right now could totally be part of the immigration enforcement under Trump. So that is what I think people are responding to when they think about ICE and how do you change it in such a way that it, it's more accountable, it's more transparent. I mean, something that's like as basic as this, Emily, this is a, an administrative policy that you don't do enforcement actions at schools, uh, houses of worship, or hospitals. So that's administrative policy, but it's only administrative policy. And we've seen this administration really pushing the limits on that. They haven't rolled it back but they are picking up parents after they've dropped off their kids two blocks from a school. They are picking up people who have just left a homeless shelter at a house of worship. And so when we talk about reforming ICE, I'm all for it. I think we need to. And I think that's a good example of something that should be legislated. So we're not hoping that the next president won't pick people up, you know, as they're leaving the emergency room. But the notion of not having any interior enforcement in the U.S. feels Probably not where the majority of the public is going to be, but I think reorganizing it, making it accountable, enforcing priorities, absolutely. Um, and another idea that's come up in a proposal 
that manages kind of the interior, um, is that Cory Booker has included in his immigration policy a plan to phase out the Department of Homeland Security's contracts with private prisons over a three-year period. So can you talk a little bit about the role of private prisons, the role they're currently playing in the immigration system? They're making out like bandits, um, ironically, because of the expansion of detention. And it's resulting in there being very little transparency um, as to what the conditions are. And you, you're seeing much more pushback on that now. Some companies are being you know, told to, to back off, which is good. It's been some effort by activists. But it's, it, it all speaks to the notion that this administration is trying to round up as many people as it can and put them in jail, incarcerate them, put them behind bars. And it's part of the othering. And to the extent that private industry is profiting from it, you know, I think that that's where Booker is coming from, is that that's just like, this shouldn't be how they're making their dollars. And it should be under the scrutiny of the government and what ways that that we fulfill our obligations, not having private companies get away with it. Now, you've touched on this, but as part of a comprehensive immigration plan, a couple of candidates... Um, Beto O'Rourke, Castro and Inslee and others have called for increased foreign aid to Central and Latin American countries. So do you think this is like a necessary piece of a comprehensive immigration plan? I think it's necessary. I think it's smart. And frankly, it's an element that I'm pleased to see more and more candidates talking about because it acknowledges that people don't just show up at the border from nowhere. They're not being dropped from the heavens. Um, They are coming from their countries for a reason we can play a really important role in creating conditions in those countries so people don't leave. Most people don't want to leave their home country, Emily. Most people want to stay in a country with their family, raise their kids, earn a decent wage, and have confidence that if a crime's committed, they can report it to the police and that it's not the police that's actually committing the crime, which is what happens a lot in uh, in those Central American countries. So we do have a an important role to play in that. And there hasn't been enough thinking um, and policies around are the programs that we're supporting in those countries in fact creating conditions so that people stay? and Because and, that's measurable, right? That's measurable. If we're making investments in the educational system in El Salvador, you know, is that working in tandem with changes to their health care system, their judicial system? And do we see that fewer people are leaving? That isn't the way it works right now. Um, Decisions about where foreign aid goes and what the metrics are tied to it doesn't have anything to do with migration. And so I think to the extent that the candidates are like thinking of those terms where it's a much more integrated approach and acknowledging the reality that people are going to continue to come until they can stay where they want to live safely, you know, we're always going to fall short. Well, thank you, Angie. Thank you for this conversation. It's been really enlightening. And thank you so much for giving us the time. Of course. To remind us of the human experience that is inextricably linked to the discussion about immigration, I spoke with Wendy Carrillo. Wendy was born in El Salvador but fled during the Civil War and immigrated to the United States as a child. Wendy now serves as a California State Assembly member and is the EMILY's List Rising Star of the Year. Welcome, Wendy. My name is Wendy Carrillo and I serve in the California State Legislature as the Assembly Member for the City of Los Angeles and East LA. And you've gotten some national recognition from your work in the legislature. Yes, uh, my third day in office is when Trump decided to 
or announced that he would rescind temporary protective status for Salvadorians across the United States. I am Salvadorian. I was born in El Salvador. I came to the United States when I was very little, when I was five. I'm the only member of the California State uh, Legislature that is Salvadorian. So we immediately went to work to allocate $10 million to ensure that California TPS recipients uh, had access to legal recourse. That's incredible. I feel like you are truly using what we talk about in theory as like, rep- you know, the importance of representation and having a seat at the table. I mean, do you think that would have happened if you hadn't been in the legislature? I think having a seat at the table and using your voice when you're at that table are two very different things. Because I'm in the room, because I'm vocal, because I'm active, we were able to also go to El Salvador with our new governor, Governor Gavin Newsom, in his first international trip and actually go to El Salvador and accompany him and show him some of the communities and and try to learn together as to the root causes of migration. You know, most of the stories that we're hearing right now, especially when it comes to the crisis at the California border or the Texas border, are stories from Central American families fleeing violence uh, and fleeing oppression and the lack of rights for individuals in, in certain nations and the, and the extreme poverty that exists that, to be quite honest, was created by American foreign policy decades ago. So having a seat at the table, being able to to advocate and come from a very different perspective is the trend that we're seeing now with newly elected legislators that, yes, our lived experiences matter. They make a difference. And when you don't come from these spaces of wanting to be safe because you want to stay in your office, you get to make different choices and say things that are um, bold and unapologetic as to the situation that currently exists. You've alluded to it a little bit, but can you tell us your personal immigration story? My family fled El Salvador during the Civil War, which lasted 12 years. So my mother came to the United States uh, seeking political asylum, and she was granted that political asylum for a very short time until she was asked who my biological father was and his involvement in the war. And my mom did not want to disclose that because she had every right to distrust disclosing that information. And my my biological father died in, in the war in El Salvador. And so because she did not disclose this information, her political asylum was revoked. And so she had to make a decision at the young age of 23 years old what she would do. And I was still back home with my with my grandmother as a baby. And she decided to stay in the United States and save money and send for us because the situation was so dire in El Salvador. So I came to the United States at five, and between the ages of five and 13, I was undocumented, but I I didn't know. But fortunately, I had received residency due to the Reagan amnesty law of the 1980s, and my mother had submitted paperwork and also remarried, and so we we had a different pathway then, but it took that long. It took from 1985 to 1993 for that to actually move forward. But I was fortunate that I was able to receive residency and then waited the amount of years necessary to apply for citizenship and then do something very serious, which is take an oath to protect and defend this nation as an American citizen, as a naturalized American citizen. And so here we are. Does that way to citizenship still exist, the one that you were, your family was able to utilize? That pathway no longer exists, nor does the Republican Party that can talk about immigration in a way that is humane, 
I mean, the rhetoric that we hear from the current administration now, from Republicans across the country, is entirely different than the conversations that were being had by Republicans in the Reagan era. And, you know, that's it doesn't um, faze me that also President Reagan was also largely responsible for everything that was going on in Central America at the time. And it impacted me negatively because I was in El Salvador, because I was born there. But then it also impacted me positively once I was in the United States. Are there any candidate platforms or specific pieces of platforms that you've seen and you were like, yes, I can see myself in that. That will help future Wendy's. I think about future Wendy's all the time. I think about me coming to this country as a five-year-old and thinking about five-year-olds that are currently living in cages in detention centers across the United States and what their future looks like. And to me, that's not a rhetorical debate. It's a real, it's a real conversation. It's a real debate about impacting human lives. I like uh, Senator Kamala Harris talking about an executive order to enforce immigration reform policies. So I think that's important. I also believe that um, Julian Castro has a probably the most detailed immigration reform policy, but it's gonna it's, it takes more than a president. And so it requires that we think about our congressional seats and how, how do Democrats take Congress back to actually pass comprehensive immigration reform that is more than just about undocumented immigrants. The 11 million people that live in the shadows across this country, that is about DACA recipients that are um, trusted their government in saying, we're going to apply for a program and now potentially feel targeted. It is about the parents of those DACA recipients or those dreamers that deserve a fighting chance. It is about TPS recipients. Temporary protective status does not allow for you to actually apply for a pathway to residency and citizenship. So people say, well, it's temporary. Why have they been here 25 years? The reality is that if you have TPS, the current immigration laws do not allow for you to actually apply for residency. That needs to change. People that are seeking refugee or, or asylum in the United States deserve to be able to see someone based on the experience that they have in their home countries and not be turned away. Our current immigration policy allows for you to go to a, a port of entry and seek asylum and seek refugee status. And people think that that is currently against the law. No, it isn't. It is actually our current law. And I think the beauty of my story or my family's story, and it resonates with millions of stories across the country. I'm the oldest of five sisters. My four <laughs> sisters were born here in the United States. My father is a son of a bracero worker who toiled the fields in the Central Valley of California. We were a family of seven none of us with the ability to vote. So when I was able to become a citizen, I was 22 years old. I was the only member in my family that was able to participate civically for a family of seven. My sisters then turned 18 and they registered to vote. My mother became a citizen as well a few years ago under President Obama. My father is in the process of becoming a citizen. So we went from a family with zero or very little political power outside of advocacy to being a family now of six individuals voting in our nation. And I think that is the beauty of when you have an opportunity and a pathway to citizenship that you can become a active voting member and decide your representatives and decide the future of your community, the future of your state, the future of this nation. And I think to some, as we have clearly seen recently, that is a scary thought because it gives power to the most marginalized of communities. 
Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Primary Playlist. For more from Angie, you can find her on Twitter at amkelly0616. You can find Wendy on Twitter at Wendy Carrillo. For behind-the-scenes photos and extras, follow us on Instagram at Your Primary Playlist. Special thanks to Wonder Media Network and the whole Your Primary Playlist team for producing this show. Talk to you next time.